This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a pick. Grab a stool and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. The technical producer is Carlos Cagina and the live stream producer is Ryan White. Please check out my YouTube and Rumble channels, Strange Planet. Always excited uh, to welcome this world-renowned paranormal researcher, investigator, and uh, we are going to uh, be madly off in all directions. We're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to talk about our strange moon. We might even work in a little bit of a discussion on Tesla and Elvis, uh, his latest paranormal experiments, including his latest metaphysical inventions, the psionic dematerializer. I love the name of that, uh, a.k.a. the bad buster and the miraculous prayer board. Joshua P. Warren has spent nearly 25 years breaking ground in the paranormal. He began publishing at the age of 15 and at age 25, Simon & Schuster published his book, How to Start or How to Hunt Ghosts, which is now widely considered a classic in the field. In 2004, he made the cover of the science journal Electric Spacecraft for his work on the mysterious Brown Mountain Lights. He's the founder of Lemur Paranormal and the Asheville Mystery Museum. He often corresponds for Coast to Coast AM, and he hosts the nationally syndicated Speaking of Strange radio show. And uh, he has a new a podcast called Strange Things. We'll talk about that as well. He's the author of, as I mentioned, How to Hunt Ghosts, Pet Ghosts, Animal Encounters from Beyond the Grave, Evil in Asheville, Haunted Asheville. It would take me all night just to uh, to list his numerous publications. Let's welcome Joshua P. Warren to the program. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Richard. It's wonderful to be with you. And uh, I just mentioned before we started, this is actually the first interview that uh, I'm giving in my new studio here in Las Vegas. So it's an honor to be breaking some ground with you. Fantastic. So let me tell me, let me ask you about, um, you recently moved, I think, uh, from one location to another in Las Vegas. Yep. You set up a new lab. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me about it? What is, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining Tesla coils and test tubes filled with strange green goo and, and things like, what does it look like? 
Well, when workmen come over to help us with, you know, set up the new house, they walk in and they say, uh, where am I? Is this Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory? <laughs> it looks like you're, you're thinking. Um, I'll take some pictures at some point and, and post. But yeah, I have a six foot tall Tesla coil in my living room. Uh, I have tons of Van de Graaff machines. There's one behind me right there. Uh, and in fact, this new house that I bought, it's much, much bigger. So I now have space not just to live in, but I've got space for the studio, for the workshop, for the new lab, and a special lab that I'm going to be talking about later on this year, which is devoted entirely to parasymatics and sigil research. Um, and then, you know, it's great because I've got some, some play area out here. I've got a swimming pool out back. It's, it's a perfect little environment for me. And yet... As if that weren't enough, as I was looking at real estate here in Las Vegas, I saw that there is this incredible paranormal hotspot for sale, and I couldn't resist. And so I bought this additional land. Um, and uh, do you want to get into that right now? Or do sure. you want to this, say- <laughs> this is the one near, near Area 51, right? Where else yeah. is Joshua P. Warren going to buy property? I mean, you, you have a place out in Puerto Rico, like in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle. So obviously you're going to buy near Area 51. Well, you know, I guess it was about four or five years ago. I was heading to Area 51 and uh, by car, and I was using the differential time rate meter, which was a new device designed to help us measure time anomalies. I was the first person who got to test this out. It was invented by my friend, Ron Heath, who is a Silicon Valley engineer. And as I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements. And I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. And that was uh, astounding. It's not supposed to do that. I think now we're finding it's not as uncommon as it was just four or five years ago. But uh, still, I mean, this made national news. And so I started going out to the Area 51 uh, location a lot. And I realized that there was one spot in particular. It's very, it's, it's right off the extraterrestrial highway. It's not far from the little alien. And it is but it's off the road a good way. So it's very, very quiet and isolated. And this is a spot where every type of paranormal manifestation you can imagine has occurred. Everything, including apparitions, cryptids, time slips, uh, all kinds of uh, UFOs and abduction scenarios. Um, it, it, it's one of those places where the Piranagat man carvings have been found, uh, which is, you know, Piranagat man looks like an alien that was carved only around area 51 thousands of years ago in various locations. So anyway, this is sort of a huge natural hot spot. And I saw when I was looking at real estate that that property had just come up for sale and I immediately got on the phone. And I bought it cash right then, right then and there. Okay. I didn't even hesitate. I couldn't believe that I got this land. I had, I, I was waiting for that deed every single day to get into my hands just to, <laughs> to prove that I wasn't dreaming this. So I now own this land and I don't want to say exactly where it is yet. It's multiple acres. So it's plenty of space. And because this is a natural paranormal hotspot, I have decided it is time for me to create this machine that has been in my head for years 
that I intend to operate at this location to enhance what is naturally occurring there and to, for better or for worse, attempt to open a portal or some kind of an interdimensional doorway there. And it kind of reminds me of how Tesla, Nikola Tesla went to build his Wardenclyffe Tower in New York, this big 200-foot tall tower. Well, my machine is not going to be that big. Uh, the first version of it may be six to 10 feet tall, but I'm taking every single thing that I've learned, and I've been doing this stuff almost 30 years now. I'm taking everything that I've learned about physics and metaphysics and psionics and psychotronics and radionics and ancient secret technologies that have been rediscovered. I'm combining all of this together with sacred geometry into this machine, which should work in harmony with the, the forces that are already there. And if it does what I expect it to do, then um, we are going to have the most clear and powerful evidence of other dimensions and a paranormal phenomena uh, that has ever been documented. And I'll be honest with you, Richard, uh, I am a little afraid. I mean, I know there are people who are going to say this is very irresponsible. You shouldn't do it. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, and there's some truth to that. But I think that if I do this, I can do it gradually. <laughs> so if, 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 I, if, I, if I start to not like what I see, I can ramp it back down. Right. Yeah. It, uh, it sounds similar to, didn't George Adamski build something like that out near Joshua Tree in the desert? Yeah, there is an Integratron, That's which is it. a giant building out there. And so you know, there have been similar kinds of things done. This is not going to be a building, though. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it reminds me a lot of uh, a Tesla coil and it's some of its overall appearance, but it works very, very differently. And um, I, I've got a name for it. It's a great name. Uh, I think it's going to be a very, very memorable name when I finally tell people about this. But I'm not sure how long it's going to take me to create it. Uh, I figure it will take me a minimum of a year, uh, possibly two years at the most, because there are some exotic components that I have to gather to make this work. I may have to travel to some other parts of the world and get some things. I'm not sure yet. But uh, my friend, excuse me, my friend C. Eric Scott is a great filmmaker in Washington, D.C., and uh, he's won lots of awards. And we've worked together on all kinds of shows on the History Channel and Travel Channel and Nat Geo. So... He is going to travel here off and on as I am building this thing and document it. So if all goes well, we'll have this really interesting documentary that will either have a huge finale where we see something that's mind-blowing, or it will just be a complete portrait of a madman as he descends <laughs> into the chaos of trying to fulfill this impossible mission. Either way, it should be entertaining. Wow. Well, let's hope it's the, the former and not the latter. Joshua P. Warren, joshuapwarren.com. And, um, well, this piece of land that you brought, I, I, I don't I obviously don't want to divulge too much, but it sounds like almost like the Skinwalker Ranch. Um, you mentioned, you know, it's like a one-stop a one shopping location for all paranormal activity. Yeah. How do you account for that? Is Does it have are there ley lines does it have to do with the mineral composition is there a lot of quartz 
what do you think might be at play here? Well, this area between Las Vegas and Reno, Nevada, and Fresno, California, is known as the Nevada Triangle. A lot of people have never heard that term. And in fact, there are more disappearances, for example, here than there are in the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, over the past 60 years, I think something like an average of three airplanes per month ha have vanished in that triangle. And what's weird is that you're talking about mostly barren land. So there is great visibility of what's down below for search and rescue. And you have some of the most sophisticated military technology in the world here, uh, where they are constantly scanning the skies for aircraft. And where do these, these planes go? As a matter of fact, if you go to the Las Vegas uh, actual Metropolitan Police Department website, they have a whole page talking about how many people vanish in Las Vegas every day and, and, and you know, that's take how, how to take care of yourself. So anyway, but moving beyond that, here in the Nevada Triangle, we have got some uh, truly unique uh, geological characteristics, at least for our country. Uh, this is known as the Silver State, but actually uh, much, much more gold is found here than silver. Nevada is the number one gold producer in our country, and it's the number fourth in the entire world. I think uh, we only have Russia, China, and Australia ahead of it. So the only reason that this continent makes the, the, the map, so to speak, is because of Nevada. So we have this enormous amount of gold and a lot of silver here. So needless to say, the ground here is incredibly conductive. And of course, besides just being conductive, gold is the most perhaps mysterious metal that we have um, that's always been worshipped by the ancients. It's always been associated with metaphysical powers like the Ark of the Covenant. It's extremely durable. We use it in outer space all the time for shielding and masks. It doesn't corrode. I mean, gold is a very special thing. And there are loads of it underneath the ground here. Additionally, you have one of the hottest places on Earth here. Like, for example, here in Las Vegas the other day, I think it was uh, like 108 degrees. And in Death Valley, it was only like 112 degrees. That's <laughs> two hours away. Okay. So we're basically in, in, in Death Valley is the hottest place on earth. Right. Furnace Creek, I think, holds the record. I've been there. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're, we're basically, you know, we're here in the middle of this area where it's so hot and so dry that electrostatic charges are just phenomenal. They're super powered here. I mean, for example, when I lived in Western North Carolina, where I'm from, uh, it, there was so much humidity all the time that often if I wanted to experiment with a, a Van de Graaff machine or something like that, I would have to run a dehumidifier for a few hours, if not a couple of days, because it's nice and lush and green and it rains there all the time. Here, uh, I'm walking to the machine and I get a shock when I reach out <laughs> to turn it on, you know, dragging my feet across the carpet. And so uh, the, the electrostatic charges here are just so powerful. If you take this dry climate with these incredible winds that allow these charges to be expressed and you look at the power supply that's given from all of this conductive metal in the earth below, and then you add all the layers of dramatic history into that human behavior, you know, the whole phenomenon behind Las Vegas and then the mystery of Area 51 and the military activity and the aliens coming. 
it is a true phantasmagoria and it is just a playground for a person like myself. The difficult part, Richard, is trying to sort of sort it all out because so much happens all the time. Uh, you don't know what category, what box, uh, what a certain subject might fit into it at any time. It's a little bit overwhelming. Right, right. Um, you mentioned, you know, you, you're going to build this machine on this property and, uh, I don't know, maybe open a portal or that might help explain, you know, what's at the, uh, the root of all of this paranormal activity. And, um, you, you're worried, you know, maybe you'll descend into madness. But you, this was the subject of one of your, your recent podcasts, Strange Things, and, and people were asking you, it was kind of an Ask Me Anything session, they were asking you, what, what scares you? Yeah. So what is it that scares you? Well, from a paranormal point of view, there is something inherently frightening about knowing that there is an intelligent being that may be right there in the same room with you that can interact with you, but that you can't see it and you can't necessarily control it. And that really set home with me when I had an experience at Myrtle's Plantation in St. Francisville, Louisiana, years ago. This is right outside of Baton Rouge. I got to stay by myself uh, an entire night in this plantation. And, and I mean by myself, there was nobody else on the property, no maintenance people or anything. And I was there because uh, I'd arrived early. I was going to do a TV shoot there in a, in a couple of days. And so I was uh, at 10 o'clock at night in this room called the General David Bradford Suite. All the lights were turned off. I decided to do that because I had a, a little video camera with the night shot on it. And I had some EMF meters. And I'm walking around the whole house and didn't really see anything. But I got into this room, which was my bedroom with the big 15-foot ceilings and the four-poster Ebenezer Scrooge bed and the paintings on the wall with the eyes that follow you and the whole nine yards. <laughs> and uh, suddenly my equipment goes bonkers. And, uh, and I, of course, I'm scanning around the room and I don't see anything. And then a couple minutes later, boom, 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 about jumped out of my skin. Something very loud knocked on my door, I presume. So I walked over, opened the door. There was nobody there. So I went back inside and I said, is there somebody here? Boom, boom, boom. There it was again. But this time it was in a different location. So just to be sure, I said, if there is somebody in this room with me, please do that again. Boom, boom, boom. Now I got all this on video. If you go to my website, joshuapwarren.com, there's a lot of stuff you can see there, including this video. It's in, on one of the sections of the site. And when that happened that third time, I would be lying if I told you that I didn't immediately feel this fight or flight instinct that made me feel I just wanted to get out of there for a, for a minute. I just wanted to turn and leave. Now, you're talking about I'm a guy who supposedly lives for this sort of thing. Right. I'm out there searching for it. I'm trying to make it happen. You know, I'm trying to stir the pot. And then when something like that finally happens, it's so shocking um, that it's life altering. Because once I gathered myself and I didn't run, I stayed there. This went on for hours. And I would ask this thing, okay, well, knock on this, knock on that. And this, I mean, it, I was clearly interacting with an invisible 
being that was intelligent in that room. And it always would knock in threes. I didn't know why. I tried to communicate with it. I'd say knock once for yes and twice for no. And it wouldn't do it always in threes. I found out later that according to one of the traditions in that area, if there's a spirit that always wraps in threes, it's evil because it's mocking the Holy Trinity. Ah, right, right. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they said. So anyway, um, this went on until eight o'clock in the morning when uh, finally it woke me up uh, because I was worn out and uh it banged on the headboard of my bed and that's the only time i think i've ever asked a ghost to please stop because i'm there to document them um that still bothers me sometimes because if i go to a a haunted hotel room i don't i i don't like staying in the haunted room because i'm fine seeing a ghost when i'm kind of ready for it you know when i've got the camera and i got the gear and i'm I'm on the clock. <laughs> right. You don't want to do it in your spare time. <laughs> I don't want to wake up in the middle of the night and have one of these phantoms standing next to the bed. And I know that happens. And as a matter of fact, I think oftentimes these beings, they come and they feed off of you while you're sleeping. They take your dormant energy while you're relaxed and they somehow feed from that. So that does scare me. And there are times when, you know, I, in the middle of the night, I'll, I'll I'll wake up and I'll, I'll start kind of getting a little bit freaked out because I feel like there's something in, in the room. And, you know, I, uh, I have tons and tons of, uh, well, haunted items. I try not to get cursed items, but, you know, you mentioned that uh, I, I had a museum for many years. I actually had to close the museum down because it got flooded. Uh, mm-hmm. But I shipped everything out here to Las Vegas. And so at some point I'll put it on display again. So do you have some some objects that sh- that you believe are, I don't know, cursed, haunted, uh, possessed, whatever the proper terminology is? Well, yes. Uh, some of the things that I have, I will not have in my home. Uh, I keep them in a storage unit and I'll bring them out sometimes if somebody wants to see them. Or like we have a show that we do here occasionally in Vegas. It's called the uh, the Vegas Ghost and UFO Show. And it's like 60 minutes in a bar <laughs> where you sit there with a beer and we show you all of our goodies and we show you footage and the best evidence for all this paranormal stuff around here. And so uh, I have, have, for example, a, a mortician's kit that's pretty gruesome. Uh, it's got, you know, all the, the good old blood stains and whatnot. And uh, anytime somebody has brought that into their home all night long, they hear banging on the walls, uh, 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 paintings and things. Uh, like at one point uh, there was a lady named Missy Hill and she was the owner before I got it. She actually had this one painting that flew off of the wall in front of her and my sister uh, when she was taking it out of the house to bring it to me. And um, the guy who does the show, Nick Weird, he doesn't mind keeping some of these kinds of things in his house occasionally, but I don't like having something like that in my house. On the other hand, two things that I treasure that I keep in my house that I do not usually put on public display anymore. One of them is Dr. Raymond Moody's original Psychomantium Mirror. Ah, Yes. And I think something like that belongs in the Smithsonian. Um, You know, when Dr. Moody was coming up with his book, um, Reunions, which was the follow-up to his best-selling Life After Life, um, he 
sort of pioneered the modern version of the psychomantium technique where you more or less sit in front of a mirror with dim lighting and given the proper conditions, people see full-blown apparitions that will appear and, and move around uh, the room and interact, you know, as if they are fully, fully 3D corporeal figures. And so um, he went to this little antique shop in Anniston, Alabama, and he found this old mirror. There's no telling how old it is with this big ornate wooden frame around it. And he bought that and he painted it, but painted the frame black with his own hands. And then when that book came out and was a success, he went on tour around the world and he would teach people the psychomantium method by carrying this mirror with him. He carried this particular mirror all over the world. And he did these sessions where thousands and thousands of people around the world looked into this mirror and had paranormal experiences. And I hired him years ago to come to uh, Western North Carolina and produce a, a workshop for me there. And it was a wonderful, uh, wonderful time. We had a lot of really important people who came there as just as guests. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley was there and Ray Buckland and uh, Martin Nesbitt. And there, there were a lot of, you know, big paranormal folks who realized that, you know, these are folks who usually would be presenting at a, pro, at a program, uh, at, a, at a conference, and said they were just coming there to, to be a part of this like I was. He trained us for days uh, how to do this technique. And then um, when he left, there were some people who were staying extra days. And so instead of disassemble the psychomantium room, uh, he said I could mail the mirror to him when they were done. I said, okay, fine. So he and his mm -hmm. wife went home. Came time for me to retrieve this mirror. And as a long shot, I contacted him. I said, before I send this back to you, <laughs> is there any chance you would consider selling this? And he did not want to sell it. But his wife said she was like raymond we have enough stuff in the house we've talked about this it's time to start clearing some space out you know and so i felt kind of sorry for him but she she talked him into selling this thing to me so my wife lauren and i we went over and, and i just i still it's one of those things like sometimes when i get something like this i can't believe i own it it's just like the land i just got near area right. 50 right. so like i got this wagner it's like the honus wagner rookie card I agree. Yeah. It's, and there's nothing else you can even compare with it. It's, it's so unique. And so, uh, so, and this is one of those stories that it's just like, uh, it's, it almost gives me goosebumps because it was just so tangible. We got the mirror and, uh, it was out at, in black mountain, North Carolina at this old bed and breakfast. That's where we did the event. I very, of course I wrapped it very well, put it in the trunk of my car and, Maybe five minutes away uh, is this very popular pizza joint. So Lauren and I decided we would stop there and have lunch. So we pull up to this pizza restaurant. We got out of the car. We'd taken two or three steps away from the car and something goes bang inside of the trunk. And we both stopped. And by the way, um, you might think with all these stories that I have a really big imagination. Well, I do have a big imagination, but I also, I use my imagination to create fiction most of the time. You know, I write novels and that sort of thing. I, I don't confuse reality because that's why I like to document things. I like to record things. Uh, 
And my wife, she's not really that much into the paranormal at all. So we both are like, what was that? And we walk over and boom, we hear something. Again, I'm thinking like, it sounds like somebody's trapped and, you know, we've, we've thrown somebody in the trunk. Open the trunk. Everything was fine. After that, we took the mirror home. We put it on the wall. And uh, my wife, I never experienced anything too weird around it. But my wife said that a lot of times when I was gone, she would hear people talking in the living room where we had it. And then, of course, she would walk in there and there was no explanation. So she did not like that. But I do have that mirror here. Uh, I, since I just moved into this new house, it's still packed. So I, it's not even hung up. The other thing that I have, Richard, of course, is Art Bell's alien statue. Ah, uh, how did you get that? <laughs> yeah. This, now, this, when, this is like when you walk in the door to my house, you're greeted by Carville the alien. Um, and the story behind this is, is so wild. You know, I'll, I'll get us started here before we, uh, before we go to our next break, but we basically four minutes, we got about four minutes. Yeah. So, um, it really began with Rush Limbaugh because there was a woodcarver who lived in, um, I think Delaware, uh, who was a big fan of Rush Limbaugh and this guy back in the 1990s. He would carve a lot of these wooden Indians in, for cigar stores. It was very popular back then. And uh, he went to a gas station and saw a weekly world news that had Rush Limbaugh posed with some aliens. <laughs> and he got a kick out of that. And so he, um, he decided he would carve a wooden alien. And he had some deliveries to make in New York. And so he dropped this uh, four-foot-tall, you know, like 100-pound mahogany alien that he had created with his own hands right there at uh rush's studio and never heard another thing about it for like 10 years had no idea what ever happened to it but what happened is that rush fell in love with it and started calling it carville because he thought the alien looks like james carville and he actually (laughs) does (laughs) and so that yeah yeah and uh, in fact, if you want to see this thing, if you go to artbellalien.com, that's a website that I put up with all of the uh, provenance here for historical posterity, uh, artbellalien.com. And so, um, so he had this thing in his studio. And one day, uh, Art Bell traveled to New York for some reason, and Art went into Russia's studio and saw this alien and couldn't believe it and fell in love with it. And uh, so I guess that Rush could tell how much that Art enjoyed it. And the alien is standing there with one of his hands outstretched. And for some reason, Art put a $5 bill and a cigarette in the wooden (laughs) alien's hand. So a few years later, um, Art Bell was being celebrated at a resort in Marina del Rey, California. um, For I I think he might have retired for a while and then came back. You know, he did that like a dozen times or whatever. (laughs) But this was one of the times, I guess, when they they really took him seriously when he came back. And so he he got up on stage with Matt Drudge and they had like some kind of uh, an interview session with those two. And then as a surprise, the guy who was the head of Clear Channel at that time, he said he brings out this alien from the back and where it had been hidden and said that this is a gift from Rush Limbaugh to you. They shipped it all the way out here. And so, uh, so you know, there's video footage of Art getting up there and hugging it and loving on it. 
And uh, then Art took this alien back to his studio in Pahrump, where it sat next to him for all of these classic shows he was producing. And in a minute, I'll tell you how that ended up getting into my hands, uh, because um, it's quite an interesting story, as you can tell. Fantastic. Well, you got a lot of them. You got a truckload of them. <laughs> so we're talking about this um, this wooden alien head carvel that was carved for Rush Limbaugh. It's uh, given as a gift to uh, Art Bell, of course, on the occasion of one of his retirements. So how do you get carvel? <laughs> yeah, it's so odd how all this worked out. Um, so at that time, I okay, well, uh, the alien was in Art's Pahrump studio for, for years. And then I was living in North Carolina at that time, and I got, uh, let's see, I got a job to go shoot an episode of Ghost Adventures for the Travel Channel at the Winchester Mansion. Mm. That was a really cool experience. And, but it was going to be a very busy trip because as soon as I was, I was going to fly to, to New, uh, from North Carolina to California and then fly directly from there to Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, where I was going to speak at a conference and then come back. So I had all these obligations within this short period of time. When I was in San Francisco, I got a call from uh, Mobius, who is a good friend and producer and business partner. We work on all kinds of projects. And he goes, you're not going to believe this. He goes, Art Bell's trying to get a hold of you because, you know, Art had interviewed me a number of times, but we didn't like talk on a regular basis or anything. And uh, he said, Art is trying to get a hold of you because he has this alien at his house and his wife and daughter say it's coming to life at night, <laughs> running around the house and scaring the bejesus out of them. And that Rush Limbaugh's wife uh, said that she saw it turn its head one time also. And that Art has to get rid of this alien ASAP or he's going to lose his marriage over it. And I said, what have you been smoking? Are you I'm like, yeah, right. Art Bell, Art Bell has contacted me and wants me to have this. He says, I swear to God. And I said, look, I'm not going to believe this unless Art calls me and tells me. About five minutes later, Art Bell called me and uh, he told me exactly what Mobius had told me. <laughs> I wish I'd had a, my phone recording when that happened. Um, and so uh, he said, yeah, it's, you know, it's got to go and. I said, well, look, I'll pay you for it. And he, he goes, well, you know, whatever you think's fair. And so I did buy it from him. I didn't give him a lot of money, but I felt it was good to give him some money. And so uh, the problem is he invited me to go to his house and prump and get it. And I would have given anything to have had that experience, but I, there was no way that I could do it. That, and he wanted it gone right away because of the TV show and the conference. I couldn't do it. So I sent a friend of mine. Uh, a big Coast to Coast AM fan who's also a director in Hollywood. His name is Jim Castle. He went to Art's house and Art like gave him the grand tour. And it was just like, ah, I wish I could have, oh, have had that day. He Art met was a wonderful He host. met the cats. Yeah. And uh, he, um, Art got down on his hands and knees and signed the base of the alien. We have pictures of all this stuff. Art gave me a handwritten letter with, you know, describing how he got it and he signed it and all that. And then Jim shipped it to me. And for about 10 years, uh, it was in my museum in Asheville, North Carolina on public display. And it was, he was a local fixture. He was on the news and all that kind of stuff in the, in the area. And so thousands of people got to see him in my museum. When my museum flooded, thank God, he was not damaged. Uh, a lot of my stuff got, was lost. And so 
He was then shipped out here to Las Vegas since I moved to Vegas. And so basically think of the journey this thing has gone on. It went from the woodcarver shop in Delaware or whatever to Rush Limbaugh's place in New York, from there to California for the event with Art, from there to Pahrump, from Pahrump to Asheville, North Carolina, and then it came back home again to Las Vegas, where it is right now, sitting in the foyer of my house. But has anyone seen it move, Joshua? Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? So here's what happened. And uh, feel free to stop me if, if, if we need to, because... About 90 uh, seconds here. Okay. Um, when I first got the alien, uh, I knew that this was a big, you know, a big important thing to put on display. And uh, so I decided I would do like a press conference and tell everybody I'd gotten this thing. So I put him in the museum and it's own. he has his own, had his own special corner. And I bought all these special dramatic lights and put around him and signs and pictures of art. And it was a really nice exhibit. And I stayed there till about 11 o'clock at night just by myself, making sure everything was perfect because the next day the media was going to come. And then I left. I came in the next morning and when I walked in, everything in the entire museum was just as I had left it, except for Carvel the Alien. That entire four or five foot tall, 100 pound mahogany statue had shifted a full 30 degrees to the right. And instantly I was kind of ticked because I thought, man, I worked so hard to get this right. And somebody came in here and is messing with me. But I checked the security logs. Nobody else had come into that building. I couldn't believe it. I put a camera on him after that 24 hours a day. And I've never been able to document anything strange around him since. Wow. All right. Another quick time out back with uh, Joshua P. Warren right after these. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Well, we are madly off in all directions with Joshua P. Warren, one of my favorites. Uh, the time always just flies by with you, Joshua, and the conversation just flows. You are just, uh, you have so many great stories, and uh, it's, it's just such a delight speaking with you. You make my life and my job very easy. <laughs> Uh, and one of the things that sets you apart, and I've talked to, to you about this before, and you know this, uh, is that you're not, you know, you're a garden variety ghost hunter, or UFO tracker. I mean, you have a laboratory. You, you're an inventor. Uh, I mean, that that just really sets you, um, you know, head and shoulders above so many others in the field. So tell me about your latest. What do you call these metaphysical inventions? The yes. psionic dematerializer. What is that? <laughs> this is something that. It's uh, just sort of when I finally realized that this could be an invention that would help people, this light bulb went off and I was like, why did I never think about this before? Okay. Here's the background of this here in Las Vegas. Uh, of course, we're always hearing about the secret technology that's being developed at Nellis air force base and out near area 51 and groom Lake, et cetera. One of the things that they, work on most is invisibility technology. They're trying to make all these different craft as invisible as possible. And I mean, optically invisible. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you can do this right now, 
But if you uh, if you go to joshuapwarren.com, there's a video that my friend Steve Barone shot, uh, and you're welcome to show it here on your podcast if you'd like. Um, and it shows one of these invisibility, uh, these, these cloaked triangle craft landing at Nellis Air Force Base. Steve Barone is a guy who goes out just about every night and he videotapes everything he can from these high perches in the area. And it's really cool. If you go to uh, my website, there's a section that where there is the curiosity shop. And that's where I sell all my weird stuff. And sometimes I put some cool footage there and you can scroll down. You'll see where it says something about Steve Barone UFO. And you can see that if this triangular craft did not have lights turned on its three points, you wouldn't see it at all. Uh, the, the lights are, of course, turned on to help it land. But as it's landing, you can see through it. And the type of technology that is being used, and there are many types, is sometimes similar to this. This is a type of cloaking material. Yes. This is a plastic that's got a special pattern on it that bends light. So like, for example, if you take, I'm holding up a little figure of a Bigfoot here for those who can't actually see what I'm doing. And if I take this tube of cloaking material and I put it over top of it, you'll see it kind of distorts it and it disappears, right? Right, exactly. This is not an ideal setting for this because I have, you know, I'm in a studio with lights everywhere, but right. you get the idea. Yeah, typically so I, you would be able to see sort of because the light bends, and I've seen you uh, on on your website as well sort of demonstrate this with what's looked like kind of a shower curtain. Yeah, I was able to go into a busy bar in Las Vegas on a Saturday night and uh, put one of these over my, uh, in front of my table, and I was completely invisible. All night long, people were walking back and forth by my table mm-hmm. and had no idea there was a man sitting there. I did that just to prove the point. And I, I felt like that in a restaurant, and uh, and I didn't even have an invisible <laughs> ignored by the waitress, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I've been in some of those situations as well. So I started thinking, well, okay, if this can essentially take light, this material, and stop it or neutralize it or bend it in some way. Let's use that word neutralize. Let's say it neutralizes the light that's coming from the object inside. Can it do that for other things? Can it do that for thoughts? What happens if you take a negative thought and you place it symbolically inside one of these tubes of invisibility cloaking material? Now we're getting kind of out, out there in the mm. world of quantum physics and non-locality and radionics, but that's fine. I love dabbling with those things and experimenting. What if I take something that is a negative thing and I represent it and I put it in here? Will it, will it disperse it? Will it neutralize it? And I, what I did first off is at that time, I had a, uh, a very noisy neighbor. And I thought this is an easy thing that I could work on. And so I wrote down my noisy neighbor and I put it in the tube. Within a couple of days, the neighbor moved out. That was my first indication there was something to this. And then I began to realize that what I did here was very special because usually if you're trying to manifest something, you think about what you want. And that's very difficult for a lot of people. A lot of people, they say like, I can't envision what I want. I don't have that kind of imagination. But everybody seems to have no problem envisioning what they don't want, right? Everybody can tell you what their problems are, what they don't like, whether or not they have a solution. And that's when I realized this could be a form of magic for people who don't like magic. 
And so the idea is I started putting this little kit together and it's got a few components in it. So I took a test tube and I put some of this cloaking material all around it. So right. you got a little test tube of cloaking material. Right. And you take a slip of paper and you put whatever you want inside of it. But you have to put what you don't want. You don't put what you do want. You put what you don't want. Okay. <laughs> you put what you don't want. You write it down. You put it inside there. But I wanted to enhance this. And at that time, I was studying the uh, Greater Keys of Solomon, which is a grimoire, a book of spells that was produced in uh, Europe in the Middle Ages. Right. And it's got a bunch of seals uh, that represent different types of magic that is supposedly attributed to Solomon. One of them is called the Fifth Pentacle of Mercury. And I have here in my hands a little coin that I had made that's got the fifth pentacle of Mercury. And this is supposed to neutralize bad things. Right. There's a close-up of this on the, the bad buster on the screen now. People can yeah. see the, uh, you've got the test tube with the uh, cloaking uh, material around the test tube. And then you've got that's the that coin there we see in the bottom right. And that's the seal. That's the seal of Solomon that's supposed to neutralize uh, bad things and clear obstacles. And so you place this on top, this two test tube on top, and then everybody who does all this kind of practicing with uh, gems and, and crystal power, they always talk about how black tourmaline clears negativity. Mm. So I took a little piece of black tourmaline and put it on top of the whole thing and set it aside. And this is what I call the psionic dematerializer, which has now become known as the bad buster. And I make these that's only available on my website. And I make them in small batches, so you never know if I'm going to have them in stock or not. But I put this thing out there, and I, I had no idea what kind of a reaction I was going to get, which is usually the case when I make these things. And I think I only made like 100 of them, and they were gone within 24 hours. And then that's when I really became impressed because all of the emails started coming in from people telling me about success stories. And some of them are pretty uh pretty touching. Like one person had a kid that had a bad drug problem and actually wrote down that, you know, something about that kid's drug problem and said the kid was able to go through and recover and get out of that lifestyle. I mean, I've gotten tons and tons of people who've said nothing like this has ever worked for me because I am a negative person. I am a pessimist. But in this case, this kind of turns that into a superpower. It's almost like the more negative you are, the better it works. Wow. Because you're taking what you don't like and you're really visualizing it, putting it in there and destroying it, as opposed to having this optimistic outlook on life, which is usually required with these manifestation techniques. Wow. The psionic dematerializer, a.k.a. the bad buster. It's almost like the opposite of the the, the sigil. I still carry the uh, the sigil around in my wallet whenever uh, the mighty Aphrodite and I can go, and she has one as well. We go buy our lottery tickets and we... Uh, we look at, we focus on the sigil and then we buy the tickets and we, you know, we pick our numbers and so forth. And we've had, you know, I guess in the universe, you're not allowed to get greedy. So we win free tickets and we win ten, fifteen dollars here and there. Uh, there you go. That's the one. That's the one. That's the money attracting sigil. That's free on my website. Anybody can go there and download this sigil. And, you know, this is uh, something I created using parasymatics, which is a technique that I created. And um, which, you know, I mentioned that I have a whole new parasymatics lab 
that I'm building right now. I, I mean, I have my regular lab where I do all my wacky, you know, electrostatic, electromagnetic stuff. But this lab is going to be devoted 100% entirely to creating sigils. Fantastic. All right. We will, uh, we're rolling into the top of the hour here. Joshua P. Warren is going to stay with us. He's uh, being very generous with his time. And uh, he is uh, truly a treasure. 25 years breaking ground in the paranormal. And back with more of our conversation and hour two. Stay with us. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Ryan White is the live stream producer. Carlos Kajina is our technical producer. Joshua P. Warren stays with us this hour. He spent 25 years breaking ground in the paranormal, began publishing at the age of 85. Of course, age 25, he wrote that uh, classic How to Hunt Ghosts. And uh, in, the, uh, in 2004, he made the cover of the science journal Electric Spacecraft for his work on the mysterious brown mountain lights. And he now re- resides in Las Vegas, where he's uh, building a brand new experimental lab and uh, joining us from his brand new studio. Uh, Joshua, we were talking about uh, some of your metaphysical inventions. Last hour, we talked about the psionic dematerializer, the uh, the bad buster. And um, tell me about the uh, the prayer board, the miraculous prayer board. I have always been fascinated by prayer because prayer is the one form of manifestation that seems to be most embraced by most of the world. Um, What's funny is if I sit down and I start having some kind of a metaphysical conversation with you about how you can manifest things by thinking about them a certain way, some people will be like, oh, that just sounds like a bunch of hooey. But then I say, well, do you ever pray? Yeah. Okay. Well, you're doing the same thing, basically. Um, there are different ways of projecting your thought out there and, and envisioning it shaping reality, whether that means you think your thoughts are literally going to directly shape 
physical matter and make a change, or if you think that your mind is connecting with the mind of a greater being like God, it doesn't really matter how you envision that. What matters is that people engage in this practice, and everybody has stories about how this seems to work sometimes. Now, look, some things are inevitable. We all eventually have to break down and die, for example. That's just the way it is. But there are a lot of things that we can change if we have the right kind of mindset. And if you've ever said a prayer, if you've ever said a blessing, then you also have to believe in curses, the opposite end of that. And I've always thought it was really intriguing that so many of the cultures around the world for thousands of years have engaged in prayer by putting their hands together. And when you put your hands together, you're quite literally closing a bioenergy circuit. This is a measurable thing because your body is a big electrodynamic machine. You have all kinds of electrical fields around you, especially coming from the hands. And so when you put your hands together as if in prayer, there's something special happening there. I don't know exactly what it is, but it just, it feels right. And it's a very powerful gesture. And people have always felt that this was the appropriate thing to do. So I've always been interested in what, what can you do with that? What can you put between these hands here that may somehow enhance this? And then years ago, a guy who is now a friend of mine, he created what he called the miraculous prayer board. And I said, what is that? And this was a very basic type of circuit that you could put your hands on that would enhance basically your prayers and your manifestations. The engineer's name is Tom Vrilock. And I was so intrigued with what he'd made. And it was a big gigantic thing though, you know? Um, so I went and I, I flew and I met with him in person. He was living in Wisconsin at the time. And I looked at some of his designs and things. And I said, I want to, you know, experiment more with this. And he was, he's a great fellow. He was happy to have me do all kinds of tests. And I finally contacted him and said, I would like to create my own version of this with your permission. And he said, yes, yes, please, please. As long as I get one, you know? <laughs> so I took what I had learned from what he was doing and what I discovered in the lab. And I turned it into my version of the miraculous prayer board. And this is a, a piece of black acrylic. You can see it's not, it's not very large. It's, uh, oh, I guess maybe like six inches by six inches. Right, right. It's a, it's a square, but it should really be held in front of uh, someone as, as a diamond shape. Right. And there is a, uh, there's a, a copper, uh, well, there's a copper line that goes across the board. And there are a couple other little uh, cop copper rays. And these are absolutely conductive. So, for example, if you take a battery and an LED light and you place the battery on one end and the LED light on the other end, it will light up the LED. Okay. Ah, so this okay. Is a conductive circuit. This is electrically conductive. So, what you do is you put your thumbs on either side of the, the device. These are the thumb plates. And so you're completing that circuit that you would complete when you put your hands together, except now you're completing it through this device. Right, right. In the middle, it encounters two interesting things. First, we have a gold hexagon. This is actual, authentic 18-karat gold. Oh, wow. 
And so this goes back to what we were talking about last hour with gold being a very special type of yes, um, yes. conductor with metaphysical properties. And then right in the middle of the gold, we have a piece of high quality quartz and quartz crystal is a natural transducer. And so transducers are able to take an electrical uh, field or an electrical current and they turn it into a physical vibration and vice versa. So that is to say, if you apply electricity mm -hmm. to quartz, it resonates. And if you, uh, if you put pressure on quartz, it produces electricity. Okay. That's interesting. Um, it reminds me of, um, I've seen uh, incidents of ball lightning around railroad tracks are quite yeah. high because you've got the, uh, you know, you've got all that rolling steel wheels on steel tracks. And if there's quartz there, those are the conditions, I guess, to create ball lightning, right? Absolutely. I think at Brown Mountain in Western North Carolina, where we have the Brown Mountain lights, it has a lot to do with the fact that that mountain is largely composed of what they call cranberry granite and quartz crystals. Mm. And you can walk along and you can just reach down and pick up like gigantic pieces of quartz. Uh, there's also a lot of magnetite up there. If you walk around and you drag a magnet on the ground behind you, you'll pick up all kinds of stones. And so um, it's sort of like a big battery or big capacitor. Okay. And so what I think is happening here is that whatever circuit is being connected that would ordinarily be connected through the hands directly is instead passing through this circuit and it is resonating this crystal on some level, which is actually creating a physical transmission, a physical broadcast of some sort. In fact, this is the most basic form of broadcasting. Hmm. When you were a kid, you probably played around with crystal radios. Sure. Ah, yes, yes. And, you know, it's the same concept there. You know, a crystal radio does not take a battery. Uh, all you need is a coil and the right type of circuit with the crystal and little earpiece. And you can hear the radio without any electricity being involved directly. Now, there actually is electricity, but it's the waves. It's the electromagnetic waves that are producing the resonance in the crystal. So I think it's very similar to that. This is a passive device. And what I decided to do was, okay, well, I hate to reduce everything to gambling, but I am here in Las Vegas. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I occasionally, you know, like, I, I like playing all the different kinds of games. Uh, I do it very moderately. Uh, otherwise, I would have been broke a long time ago, I'm sure. Uh, but some of the mo most interesting games to me are the table games, like uh, roulette or craps where supposedly you're just up against the laws of physics. Right. You know, if you sit down in front of some electro, uh, like an electronic slot machine or something, I mean, you're, you're always suspicious as to what's going on inside of this computer that has been programmed by human beings. But um, so I like uh, seeing if you can change the odds with a roulette wheel or with a craps table, which is, of course, where you're just throwing the dice. And so um, I, I created this prayer board. I sat down and I don't think there's anything wrong with praying for money or winnings. I mean, we have to, we have to live using that. I mean, so what, you know, I didn't create the system. We all have to have money to live. So exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so I sat down and I said, I, I really want to win a lot of money. And uh, I went into the craps table, played for about maybe a little over an hour. And I won more money than I've ever won in my entire life playing craps. Now, you didn't take the prayer board into the casino with you, did you? No, I took it into my car, and I sat there in the parking lot of the casino, 
and I meditated with it in the parking lot. Ah, okay. Yeah. And then I went in and I mean, it was, I, I, I usually don't talk about how much money that I win. My accountant advises me not to do that, but it was, it was thousands and thousands of dollars. Wow. And, uh, and I started with a hundred dollar bill. Um, and so since then, okay, I said, all right, what else can this thing do? Now, here's what I do, Richard. Every single day before I walk out the door, I keep one of these next to my door. And I just pause before I'm going out the door. And I take a moment, I put my thumbs on it. And I just envision the kind of day that I want to have. And even if it's just for 30 seconds. And I have found that my life is so much more charmed, if you want. It's just like a little ways. Getting a good parking space or having the weather work out your way, or, I mean, just like little things like that that just make your day so much easier, in addition to some of the big things. Um, I view this as like daily maintenance for, for me. You know, stuff like the wishing machine. We've talked about the wishing machine oh, yes, a lot. Yes. And the wishing machine, and, you know, this is like a typical wishing machine I've got in my hands right now. What you do with one of these, of course, is you, you take what you want to wish for, and you place it here on an input plate, and then you adjust these knobs, and you just let it sit there and you leave it alone for days or weeks or months. So this is good if you have a, a, like a big long-term project that you want to work on. Right. Uh, you, something really big that needs to be achieved. And it's, it's sort of like it's just sitting there working for you all the time. This is like daily maintenance. So while this is working on the wishing machines, working on big, big issues, big projects, this is just something that you can incorporate into your life every single day. And one of the things that's so great about me having this podcast called Strange Things, which of course is on the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network, yes. is that I have an opportunity to read testimonials. And I'm not the most organized person in the world so because I just have too much going on. So every time somebody sends me a testimonial, I don't always like print it out and put it in a file somewhere. But every week when I do a new podcast, I'll go back and I'll find just some of the emails that I've gotten and I read them in the podcast. And what you find is that uh, people have every sort of success using these devices that I've created. And I tell people, look, these are experimental devices. You can only get them from my website and don't buy them if you don't have the money, if you can't afford to experiment. But if you do want to experiment and you buy it, it has a 100% money back guarantee. And so if I put these out there and they didn't work, well, then this would be a very poor business, wouldn't it? Because everybody would ask for their money back. And this would have ended a long time ago. On the contrary, I've sold thousands of these things. And I think maybe five or six times somebody has asked for his or her money back, literally. Maybe that'd be the most. On the contrary, I get these messages from people that are telling me about all these success stories. Now, this brings me a great sense of, uh, of satisfaction in my life because when I'm out there studying weird stuff, the paranormal, the mysterious, I think to myself, what is the point of all this? What am I trying to do here? What's the end result? How is, it, how is this going to benefit humankind? And what I figured out is this is how it benefits humankind. If we can go out there to the field and we can see how that these types of energies that are often mysterious manifest and materialize in a real way, and we can tap into that, 
then we can use that understanding for positive purposes in order to help us manifest good things and create a better life. It's not just always about telling a spooky story around the campfire or going out and getting a thrill Halloween night. Um, What we're talking about here is understanding the mind-body-environment relationship, whether it's spooky or not, so that ultimately we can have fun learning But what we want to do is figure out how we can become better students of uh, manifestation so that we can all improve our lives. And so many people have have contacted me saying, this stuff changed my life. There was a guy named Jim Kalana, who is a composer who lives near Washington, D.C., and he wrote this big, long letter, said I could read it on my podcast about how his life was falling apart and he, he felt very lost and you know he just went on and on. He read my book, Use the Force. He got some of my devices. His life changed completely around 180. He's now very wealthy. He's very well known. And he wrote an actual like overture, a piece of music called Joshua's Cabinet of Curiosities and Miracles. Wow, what an honor. And, and they performed it uh, last in, in May. They performed it last May live on stage with a symphony orchestra in Washington, D.C. Oh, my Lord, that's amazing. Use the Force of Jedi's Guide to the Law of Attraction is the book. Um, so is leaving the spiritual aspect out of it, is, is this just a method of like amplifying the power of human intention. I think it is in some form, you know, the, the big problem is we don't really know exactly what consciousness is to begin with. Um, And so every single person is unique. Uh, Even if you have identical twins, they may have the same DNA, but they don't, think exactly the same. They behave in their their own unique way. And so every human being uh, is so unique that it's almost impossible to figure out exactly what the common thread is between all of our minds. Um, And therefore, I feel that, you know, what we're trying to do with these devices is say, look, whatever the human mind is, it ultimately is everything to us. It's like Descartes saying, you know, I think, therefore I am. If some scientist goes out there and takes some piece of equipment to try to document some phenomenon, well, you have to realize that piece of equipment was invented by a human, created by a human, built by a human, calibrated by a human. It's being used by a human. It's being interpreted by a human. You cannot take the human mind out of this experience. And so the the very fact that you and I are sitting here talking to each other right now, seemingly spontaneously, you know, I don't know where this is coming from. None of us knows where this is coming from. It almost seems like that we are channeling information from some other place, which is why Mm -hmm. I think when you die, the antenna may die, but I, I don't think you die. I think you're still some information that exists somewhere out there. Um, and so I don't know when we use these devices, how much of it is, uh, physical from a Newtonian point of view, how much of it is 
uh, a focal point for us to to be able to do the most we can with our thoughts or how much of it may just simply be a placebo effect. And if these things are nothing more than the best placebos in the world, fine. Sure. If it, you know, if it works, it works. That's all that matters. If it works, it works. Yeah. I and just so, I, I thought it might be interesting. Uh, I think there was a there was a institute, uh, Stanford Research Institute. They did this study with the power of intention and uh, groups of people, and they focused on trying to change the pH level in in water. I mean, it might be interesting to take, um, you know, the uh, the prayer board and and under lab conditions, see if using the prayer board you could do something measurable like pH balance or something like that. I agree entirely. Uh, in fact, um, I've done some pretty interesting intention experiments. I have one that I, I've tried twice, and it hasn't produced any positive results yet, but um, it's an interesting idea. I, uh, it's called the Genesis Experiment. Oh, okay. Yes, I'm glad you bring that up. I want to, uh, I want to um, get into that, and it's gonna. We need a little bit of runway for that. I was actually going to set it up uh, with a little trivia question and ask you where is baseball mentioned in the Bible? First few words in the beginning. <laughs> That's pretty bad, Richard. It is bad. <laughs> It's a dad joke, right? It's a dad joke. They're supposed to be bad. If you don't elicit, you know, a cringe, uh, a look of cringe from your uh, your children, then you haven't done it right. But we will. Old enough that I tell those also. Yeah, <laughs> we will talk about the uh, the Genesis experiment on the other side with the great Joshua P. Warren. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We're back with Joshua P. Warren. JoshuaPWarren.com. No period. JoshuaPWarren.com. How do we listen to uh, Strange Things, the podcast? Well, there's a link there on my website, or you can go directly to strangethingsshow.com. And if you go to strangethingsshow.com, you'll see a list of all the different platforms, like links to it on iHeart, Apple, uh, Stitcher, etc., as well as a list of all the ones that I've done. Each show lasts an hour. They're all free. And, you know, when I signed on to do this, um, of course, this Paranormal Podcast Network is quite new. Um, I was one of the first people that producer Tom Danheiser contacted and said, you know, do you want to do this? And I said, yeah, it sounds great. Uh, but I just signed up for one year to do 52 episodes, once, one a week. And now uh, tomorrow I'm recording show number 90. And so uh, it's, it's done. I, I mean, I knew it would do well, but at the same time, there's a lot of competition out there these days. You know, it's like everybody has a podcast uh, slash TV show. I mean, uh, so you never know when you come, you, you produce something. Now, frankly, you know, I've been doing this kind of stuff for years and years and years. I, I started working for Clear Channel as a host uh, probably like um, almost 20 years ago. 
Uh, and I did that for a long time. And then when I, I finally just said, I don't have time to do this live radio thing anymore. Uh, and then I, cause I was traveling to Puerto Rico and, and doing all that kind of stuff. And then I started moving into podcasting. So fortunately I have an audience that's kind of stuck with me through all these different forms. And so now, um, yeah, strange things is doing extremely well. And, uh, I'm just going to keep on doing it until somebody gets tired of it. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is you, I mean, most of the episodes I've heard, no guests, it's just you for like, you know, talking for an hour about your experiences and your latest projects. And, uh, you know, to be able to do that, uh, not a lot of people can, can, can pull that off. Just, you know, one person and a microphone and, uh, you do it, uh, so, so well. All right. So let's talk about the, uh, the, the Genesis experiment. What is that all about? Yeah. And thank you so much for your kind words. That means a lot coming from uh, you for sure. And you do know how difficult it is to, uh, <laughs> to keep people's attention for an hour without guests or whatever. So it's a good thing I have, um, I, I can ramble on quite well, <laughs> but uh, the Genesis experiment really was born from my friendship with a guy who was working in the medical industry. And he got a hold of some of these hermetically sealed bottles of sterile water. This is the type of water that you might use out in the field in a war zone or something like that. If you have to dress a wound and you don't have access necessarily to clean water. And I don't know. I just started thinking, wouldn't it be weird if that's supposed to be sterile, but some kind of life form just spontaneously appeared inside of it. And, uh, you know, if going back to the book of Genesis, it kind of gives the impression, you know, God just wanted there to be life and voila, there it was. And since then, uh, from our experience, everything that we know about living beings or, or living organisms, uh, it's, it's, it's just uh, one organism has to give birth to another organism. Biogenesis, life begets life. Yeah. And so what I did was take one of these hermetically sealed containers of water and I got onto uh, the first time around, I got on the coast to coast AM and I, and this is, you know, with George Nori and I told everybody here are the GPS coordinates of this bottle. And I want everybody in the world to, to focus on some form of life appearing inside this. And then I uh, went and I tested it and uh, there was nothing in it. Okay. So last year, I said, okay, I have a much, much bigger audience now, so I'm going to try this again. And so I walked into, so I did the same exact thing, except a lot more people participating. And I took the sample into this water sample uh, company here in Las Vegas, and they asked me what I wanted to test for. And I said, uh, well, how do I explain this? And, <laughs> and so I started trying to tell them like, well, I'm a podcast host and uh, I, you know, I do this I experiment with my audience sometimes. And, and this guy who's standing there, this scientist, he's looking at me like I'm an alien or something. And, and, he, and he goes, you're with coast to coast. AM. Oh, I love that show. Yeah. And he was just on board. There you and, go. There's your ticket. And so he understood what I was looking for. And he's like, okay, we can run this test and this test and this test. I wish I had a happy ending for you, Richard. But once again, there was nothing in the sterile water. But 
That's the kind of thinking here that will get us somewhere. Eventually, we're going we're gonna to work together collectively, and we're going to make something happen. Maybe the pH thing is, is a good one for us to do next. Right, right. Yeah, baby steps. Baby steps before we uh, you create a new life form. Uh, <laughs> I was listening to one of your, uh, your fairly recent uh, podcasts. I think in May or April, you were talking about um, uh, a mutual uh, late friend of ours, Jim Mars, and uh, in his book, Alien Agenda, which came out, what, the late 80s, early 90s, he talks about, um, you know, some of the strange phenomena surrounding the moon. And um, which got me to thinking years ago, I did a, an interview with a, the co-authors from Britain who wrote a book called Who Built the Moon? And the whole book is just filled with all of these strange, I mean, the moon is described as one of the the, 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 uh, the most mysterious bodies really in in the universe because uh it, the 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 upshot of it all is it, it 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 almost had to be designed uh in order for it to fulfill all of these different you know things if it was any further away from the earth if it was any closer you know life would not exist and so forth so that's kind of the premise of the book who built it you know was it time travelers coming back realizing we needed this satellite in close proximity to the earth in order to facilitate life and so forth um, so talk to me a little bit about, um, first of all, what Jim Mars had to say about the moon and then some, some interesting things that you've, you've, uh, noticed regarding the new moon. Oh yeah. Oh boy. This is a great subject. Um, for anybody who has never read alien agenda, um, I mean, Jim was so far ahead of his time when it came to taking a lot of these bits of information about the moon's strange characteristics and um, and picking up on them and, and consolidating them and talking about how basically the moon might be something like a big death star. Uh, a lot of the stuff that he talked about uh, in that book was considered hogwash by the mainstream. And now every bit of it has come true. He said that when the moon is hit by uh, a meteorite, it rings like a bell. That's been proven over and over again. Uh, for the longest time, they said there was no atmosphere on the moon, so there could be no moisture on the moon. He said that there were vapors on the moon. Well, guess what? Now scientists have come around and said, yes, that's true. Holy cow. There are vapors of wind on the moon. There is some kind of an atmosphere up there. And Jim was one of the most interesting and uh, influential people that I ever met. I mean, it, he, his his brain was like an encyclopedia. I can't believe how he remembered so much. And we had great times together. I, I knew him very well. I spent the night at his house and he spent the night at my house. And I mean, like he, he, he was a very, very deep thinker with a, a body of knowledge that was unparalleled. And I really wish he was alive right now to tell us what the hell is going on <laughs> because he would, he'd get a kick out of seeing what's happened to the world right now. But anyway, um, I found that a lot of the stuff that he was talking about regarding the moon was especially intriguing because when I was in middle school, my science teacher uh, pulled me out of class since I was one of those you know kids who was like the little science geek kid. And she introduced me to this man named Charles Yost, who lived in our area. And he was a retired NASA Hall of Fame engineer. Um, he was one of the inventors of memory foam, which we now think of as tempur foam that is used on all the space shuttles and stuff. He made a fortune off of that. 
And he was a, a spacecraft designer on the Apollo missions, including the one that sent men to the moon. Uh, so he wasn't just some, you know, guy in the, the janitor department. I mean, he was a spacecraft designer and he had a laboratory in Western North Carolina, back up in the mountains. He actually, it was, he had a big pyramid on top of it. Um, and he, he was the guy who really taught me a lot about electrostatics and Wimshurst machines and Van de Graaff generators and Tesla coils. And he had all that stuff. And, but he was a very strict scientist, a very no nonsense guy. And uh, I was the one who was always trying to look for an angle between like this ghostly stuff we're, we're seeing in the lab and what people are experiencing out in nature. So I was always a little bit afraid to ask him about things that were too weird because I thought he might think I was being flaky. But one day when I was probably about, I don't know, I wasn't that old. I was probably like maybe 18. I said to him um, that I'd known him for years already. I said, so what do you think about these people who say that, you know, we didn't even go to the moon or whatever, you know, that's a, you gotta be, you gotta be real careful bringing that subject up to NASA people. Oh, that, that question must've been burning a hole in your pocket for years and years. <laughs> now is the right time. Now is the right time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, finally, finally, after all these years, you get the, the nerve to ask them the Lollapalooza question, you know, did we actually land on the moon? Yep. Yep. So kind of held my breath. And he, he, one of the things that was really weird about talking to him is you'd ask him a question and sometimes he would just sit, he'd sit there and look at you or just stare off for like 15 seconds before answering. Very strange man. Uh, just so you know, it's not relevant, but he, he had a, he had a, a white beard, no mustache, and he always wore a little black beret. Hmm. He was just, just, about, just an unusual looking man, right? Galway whiskers. I think we used to call those if you don't have the mustache. Oh, yeah? Yes. Well, yes. that's what he had. And so uh, he looked at me and he goes, I want to show you something. It's like, okay, I hope this is going to be good. <laughs> he takes me into his office, sits me down on the couch. He pops in. I don't, I want to say it was a VHS tape, but I'm not 100% sure. But he put some kind of player on. And here I am looking at footage that NASA had shot uh, flying over the surface of the moon. And I can't remember which one of the Apollo missions this was. Um, I believe it was the one where uh, they talked about, where they read from the book of Genesis. I get, I get, I get the missions mixed up, but anyway, so from the point of view of the craft that's going over the moon, Okay, you're looking down and you see the landscape, the lunar landscape, and it's moving right. by and it's moving by, and you can see Earth in the background. And then at one point, there is this object sticking up from the surface of the moon that looks kind of like a black hair sticking straight up. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger as the camera gets closer. So it's changing perspective. And then right when the camera is about to pass by, it releases what looks like a little puff of smoke or some kind of vapor that drifts for just a second and then it cuts. Hmm. And he said, you see that little black, you know, hair or whatever. I said, yeah. He goes to scale. That would be almost 1000 feet tall. Right. Because the, the, the module is shooting it from above as it's flying above the surface of the moon. So, it looked like a smokestack 
sticking from the surface of the moon. Wow. And right as the camera is about to pass over, it releases something. And I said, well, what is that? And he said, you tell me. (laughs) And now he didn't completely ignore my question of whether or not we went to the moon. Here's how he answered that. Let's get back to the smokestack. He said, well, here he goes, well, here's all I'll say about whether or not we went to the moon. He said, I worked on X, X amount of missions. I worked on all these elaborate projects. And he says, that mission is the only one where everything just went perfectly right. It, it almost went too perfectly well. So he left it at that. But as far as this smokestack is concerned, so I said, well, uh, has this ever been put on the internet? And he said, no. I said, well, may I please put this on the internet? <laughs> Pretty please. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, it's not really mine. You know, he, he had gotten it somehow, but he says, it, you know, it's government footage and it's not classified or anything as far as we knew. So he said, sure, go ahead, put it out there. So I put it on my website and I went on Coast to Coast AM and I talked about this. And I don't think I've ever been harassed so immediately and severely as I was in the weeks, dare I say, months after this. Yikes. And I, and it wasn't, and I didn't put it out there and make any claims about it. I described it just like I've described it to you. Okay. I don't know what this is. Here's what it looks like. You go and you look at it for yourself and see what you think. Okay. And, and this is also... Someone on one of my web pages. <laughs> um, you could probably just look up smokestack Joshua P. Warren moon and, and find it. I'm not sure. I have too much stuff. Uh, my website kind of looks like my brain. It's a big mess. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, the thing is, I mean, like talk about, I never knew that men, in, I mean, I had heard the men in black stories. This is when I got to finally meet men in black. Seriously? Uh, oh, yes. It, it, it started with the uh, online harassment because basically I had a discussion board back then. And what I found was that every time somebody would post something about this being interesting, then there were a certain selection of people who were supposed to be uh, space experts who would go on and they would rebut it. And what I found was that after days of this, these people never slept. Okay. So it was like 24 <laughs> hours a day. You could leave a comment at four in the morning. There'd be a rebuttal at four thirty. You could leave a comment at you know two p.m. the next day. There'd be a rebuttal at two forty-five. Then I mean, like, so that was weird. It was I got I realized this is not a person or these are not a group of persons. This is a team of people. Interesting. All right, a few minutes remain with paranormal researcher, investigator. Inventor, author, Joshua P. Warren, joshuapwarren.com. So um, this this black hair coming out of the surface of the moon, look, which might be or seems to be some sort of a smokestack. Uh, this is in video footage that was uh, given to you by your mentor, Charles Yost, who was a NASA engineer, worked on the Apollo project. So this lunar module flying over the surface of the moon sees what looks like a black hair, puff of smoke comes out. Um, you have it up on your, one of your websites at one point, you're on coast to coast. All of a sudden now you're getting this, you know, tremendous pushback from what appears to be a team of experts, you know, that are rebutting, uh, this whole story. 
at all hours of the night. So did you ever, you know, meet any of these people eventually? Did they make themselves known? Yes. Um, so within, okay, in less than 48 hours, my telephone stopped working. And uh, I lived out in the country and I had a landline, but um, I'd never had any problems with it before. And so uh, very shortly, I mean, I called and I complained about this. And very shortly thereafter, a guy showed up um, who said he was going to fix the phone line. And here's the weirdest thing. Okay, so I answered the door expecting to see a guy there, friendly workman, who's there to fix my phone. As soon as I open the door, he looks at me and he looks down. He never, ever looked at me in the eye after that. And which that's a, it was a very awkward, uncomfortable kind of, because that's, that's not normal. You don't realize that how weird that is until somebody does that to you. Right. Either someone who maintains too much eye contact or someone who doesn't look at you at all. Those are, yeah. He would not, he would not look at me. And I said, what's going on, uh, you you think? And he was kind of mumbling around and he was saying some stuff that wasn't making a lot of sense to me. And at that point, you know, I was obviously suspicious and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I looked down at his, at his hands and he did not have a lineman's hands. You know, they, you know how guys are who climb up telephone poles. Sure. <laughs> you can, they got a little wear and tear on those hands. So he was acting real evasive and very strange. And I was like, I, I just got this very bad vibe. And so anyway, he goes off and God knows what he does. And then after that, you know, again, he comes back and doesn't look me, look at me and says, is everything's working fine now? And he gets in his truck and he drives off. Okay. So sure enough, everything was working fine. Well, the next day I went to make a phone call and I picked up my phone and there are two people talking on my phone line. We used to call that a party line. (laughs) It wasn't a party line. No, this was just my regular phone. I mean, there should have been a dial tone. Yeah. Instead, I pick it up, and there are two men talking. And one of them is, says something about an airplane, and then one of them says something about uh, some other person's name. And, and I, I, it wasn't anything that was standing out in my mind, because I'm just like, what am I hearing here? And I said, hello. And then all of a sudden, they shut up really fast and click, and that's when I realized my phone has been tapped here. Mm-mm. And we know in retrospect, that was very common, especially, you know, this would have been, I guess, when like George W. Bush was the president, you know, a post 9-11 kind of kind of period of time, I, I'm, I'm presuming. And uh, so because uh, it took me a while before I actually had the nerve to post some of this stuff on the Internet. And uh, then the men in black showed up uh, the first time I OK, this was, again, probably within that 48 hour period. I went to uh, Denny's and it wasn't like in the middle of the night or anything. And I went to a Denny's with a friend and we sat down and a couple of minutes later, a couple of men came in and they weren't literally dressed in black. But the weird thing is, is they both had, and I noticed this when they walked by, they both had big, thick, uh, unusual looking black wristwatches on. Hmm. And they had the, you know, kind of short cropped hair. Right. And they went over and they sat in the booth right next to us. And after that, for about a month, 
I would go, anytime I would go to a restaurant or a bar, I would look over and see one of these guys with the big, thick black wristwatch. Mm. That was the common denominator. And I always thought to myself, I thought, you know, James Bond is supposed to be slicker than this. You're supposed to have some <laughs> little like hidden microphone somewhere, or you slip a, an olive in my martini that's going to broadcast the conversation. But no, I mean, I don't know what technology I've never looked into it, but obviously I guarantee you somebody out there knows they, they would use some kind of black wristwatch thing, chunky looking thing. And this went on. So the, the online harassment was going on. People were telling me that uh, I was, uh, you know, every reason that I'm just a, a, a hoaxer and a charlatan who's trying to just push some kind of conspiracy theory, you know, and then, then, then I got my phone tapped and I got the guys following me around and then after that, I was like, you know, I'm not going to talk about this anymore because for, for one thing, I don't have anything else to say about it. That's all I know about it. And um, it sort of it kind of like fizzled out. And now um, I feel like that yeah, I could go out there and, and give this same information today and nobody would care because there has been so much disclosure since then. Right. Um, but let me just tell you this in a nutshell, Richard. Um, none of us knows for a fact but my gut tells me that the moon is some kind of an artificial craft. And if anybody can, can go out and study just why and how the moon is so different from, from Earth, and, and like you said, almost any other moon that's out there in the universe. And uh, there's too much mystery around it and too much weirdness for me to think that it belongs there. I, I think it, if it's not some kind of a craft, it was converted into some type of a craft and it really is sort of like a big death star and the irony is we're out there searching for ufos every day and there's a giant one every single night <laughs> right above your head yeah, a great movie on amazon a prime i just watched the other night with the mighty aphrodite called moonfall uh which is sort of about that uh so people can check that out uh we just have a couple minutes and i just i wondered if if there's time about 10 years ago, you wrote, um, or more than 10 years ago, I guess now, The Poor Man's Paranormal, um, what was it, A Poor Man's Paranormal? It's a handbook. Yeah, it's like a how-to guide and, it, you yeah. know, how to use everyday household, household, household items to, you know, document a paranormal activity. Uh, can you share one quick one with us? Well, sure. Um, one of the easiest things that you can do if, uh, let's say, you want to look for ufos is uh just take a an am radio out with you uh, they're becoming less and less common all the time but take an am radio out to a place where there might be a ufo or or sightings have been occurring and put it on a, a blank station a lot of times when there's a meteor shower when meteorites fall you can hear interference and static when the meteor comes through the atmosphere same thing with ufo with ufos you can pick up interference on the radio. And in fact, there's a, a poor man's radar, you might say, where you can take an AM radio and take it up to a, a hill near your house if you live in that type of terrain. And then you scan through and you see all the stations that you can pick up. And then you bring that radio back to your house and you tune it somewhere where you couldn't pick up a station. And if all of a sudden you can pick up a station, then some large object may be flying through there that's helping that signal to bounce uh -huh. off poor man's radar. 
you can take just, of course, a simple compass and walk around your house to see if there's an electromagnetic deviation. A lot of times if there's a ghost, it's accompanied by an electromagnetic field. A compass should always point north. If not, it's being affected by something magnetic or metallic. If it starts to spin or act weird, there's probably something ghostly happening there. Take a fluorescent light bulb. Just hold it in your hand with no wires connected to it. Walk around your house. If all of a sudden it lights up in your hand, there's an electrostatic charge that's built up. And these are ways you can detect ghosts as well. Fantastic. All right, jo- Josh, time flies. It's always so, so much fun talking to you. I learned so much. I have uh, a great time. Thank you so much for this. Hey, it's always an honor. Thank you, Richard. Joshua P. Warren, Joshua P. Warren. Com. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Ryan and Carlos. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.